And our main Bible reading this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read verses 4 to 20. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 20. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Let us hear the very word of God. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made this promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he continued it with an oath. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Praise God for his word. Good evening, all.
So it's been great to hear what we've been hearing this evening already from Dav um, and to sing some really encouraging songs because this evening, I believe, our passage genuinely is about a real encouragement for us. We're going to focus on verses uh, 9 to 20, so Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 20. Dav read the preceding verses to give us a bit of context because it kind of jumps in mid-sentence when you get to verse 9. Um, But we're going to focus on verses 9 to 20 of Hebrews 6. So please, if you've got a church Bible, turn back to verse, sorry, not verse, to page 1204. So we're back in Hebrews. We're we're reading through this letter to the Hebrew church. Um, We don't know who wrote it, but we know it's for a set of believers, people who've come from a, a Jewish background and understand the Old Testament, understand some of the heroes of the Old Testament. Um, And this writer is writing to encourage them, I believe, in this section. As I started to read this passage in preparing for this evening, there was a phrase that kept rattling through my head. And as we'll see in this passage, this passage, it gives us a call to patiently live for the Lord, but it also gives us a reminder of why we should be doing that. And this phrase, therefore, that kept coming back to me was this phrase, I don't know if you know it, but the phrase, reasons to be cheerful, which you see on the slide. Because I really genuinely believe, as I read through this passage more and more, it gives us reasons to be cheerful. Even when we're having to be really, really patient in our lives, even when we're having to motivate ourselves to diligently live for the Lord and do our works of service for the Lord. Now you might know this phrase because it's from a song, or certainly the phrase I've heard is from a song by an artist called Ian Drury. It's called Reasons to be Cheerful, Part 3. I don't know what happened to Part 1, and I have no idea what happened to Part 2. He skipped straight to Part 3. And the passage we look at this evening is definitely, can I just say, not an endorsement of either Ian Drury or his song. It's a funny, funny thing to, uh, to read through the lyrics. But the sentiment we see in his song, I think, gives us something to think about this evening. Because there are reasons to be cheerful all around us. And that's kind of where the writer of Hebrews was going. We have many, many reasons to be cheerful. Many, many reasons to, as you can see, I've scribbled out to be cheerful. And many, many reasons to persevere as we read through this passage. But what the writer to the Hebrews is definitely not saying, unlike Ian Drury, is that our reason to persevere faithfully, to live patiently for the Lord, those reasons are things like, and I quote, health service glasses, phoning up a buddy, porridge oats, carrot juice, yellow socks, curing smallpox. It's a really bizarre song. Google it if you dare, although that's not a command. But the writer to Hebrews was saying that the reasons to persevere, the reasons to patiently live and endure for the Lord and to keep going in the works of service that we do, all stem from one unchangeable and wonderful God. So let's look at what the writer was saying. What are those reasons that this writer was giving us to keep going? So firstly, this passage shows us that we need to keep patiently persevering. Near the start, we find a command to do that in verse 11. Verse 11 says, We want each of you to show this diligence 
to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Keep showing this same diligence to the very end. What diligence is he referring to? Well, it's the diligent work of working for the Lord and showing love to God's people, continuing to help them. We see that mentioned in verse 10, if you look back at verse 10. And the writer is essentially saying, keep going in what you're doing. Keep working to be faithful to the Lord's commands in how you live. And after all, this should be obvious, shouldn't it? Because the Lord's greatest commands, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command, what did he say? He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. And then he goes on to give the next one, doesn't he, without being asked, to love your neighbor as yourselves. And as you read these verses, you get the sense that the church that originally received this letter was kind of being commended for having done these things. Verses 9 to 11, if you read through them, they're actually quite complimentary. And in some ways, I think if we as a church received a letter where someone had said some of these things about us, we'd be pretty pleased. Please go away, Alexa. We'd be pleased if someone told us that God is not going to forget the good works that we have done as a church, that we have helped people diligently, because it means that we've done some of that, doesn't it? But when you read between the lines, you'll see that, yes, there is a compliment here, but there's a mandate, an underlying mandate being given as well. The writer is saying to this church, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep showing this same diligence to the very end. And it leads you to a question. Had that church that this letter was written to, had they stopped showing love to people? Had they stopped persevering? Was it petering out? Was it fading? And in all honesty, we don't know. We don't know if they had, but the letter or the writer of this letter, inspired by God, must have had an inkling that there was some danger of them getting fatigued, some danger of them stopping doing what they've been doing, that they needed to be reminded of their diligence or they would start to flag. They would start to lose their enthusiasm. And brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves if we recognise ourselves in that. I'm sure like me, you've, you've started a ministry, you've joined a ministry and you've had a real enthusiasm for it, a passion for it, you've poured yourself into it, you've put your energy, your time and it feels brilliant to be serving, doesn't it? Brilliant to be starting off serving, doing your part, glorifying God in whatever it is. But fast forward a year, two years, three years, maybe even longer, and have you found yourself thinking, mm, this is hard work keeping on doing this day by day, week by week, year by year. It's difficult to keep that same enthusiasm going that you had on day one and two and three on day 100 on day 600 and I would speculate that it's probably quite a normal thing to feel like that if you've ever felt like that I think you're not alone possibly just because actually I think you're not alone because the church 
being written to here was feeling that as well. But the command here, the command from this writer was to keep going to the very end, to pick your head up, look at where you're going and carry on. But similarly, we move on to verse 12 and we see there's a, another problem that this perhaps lack of enthusiasm or fading can cause. Verse 12 says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited what has been promised. The NIV, NIV translation says the writer doesn't want this church to become lazy. Some translations use the word slothful, which I think is better. Fatigue within ministry, fatigue within living the Christian life, it can cause Christians to cut corners. That was alliteration there, was it? Christians cut corners. It can cause Christians to get sloppy in the works that they do. And that, that could be incredibly damaging for a church in itself. Think about it in terms of the practical jobs that get done here when we're doing the cleaning, when we're stood on the door. If a visitor comes here and they get a half-hearted welcome when they enter the building, do you think that matters? No one is neither nodding or shaking their head. Do you think it matters? Yes, it does. Do you know why? Because humanly, we make our judgments, and I don't know where this source is from, but we make our judgments within seven seconds of people, of situations. How quickly do people get through that door? So if you're bored, if you're cold, if you're tired standing on the door, if you're perhaps not really feeling it being out there, you're welcome to anyone who walks through that door still and needs to be diligently loving, according to this writer. Because if you think about it at the other end of the scale as well, the practical jobs, and what about some of the spiritual jobs without elevating any job above another? What if one of our preachers here decides, I'm just going to wing my sermon this evening. I've had a quick look at the passage. I've got a few thoughts, but I've not really given any time to prepare what I'm going to preach. I'll just, uh, I'll just open God's word and see what pops out to me. Does that matter? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does, and do you know what? Sadly, in the last few years, I've seen a church where this happens. Obviously, not this church. But where the sermons, the message they were given, were some blessed thoughts, as they were described. There were some interesting facts, but there was nothing, no challenge, no substance, no encouragement. There was nothing there, and can I tell you, that congregation is in a very unhealthy place. And it's not particularly big, and it's not doing particularly well. Now these verses, they don't pretend that any ministry and diligently, patiently enduring for the Lord, they don't pretend that it's easy, do they? We know it can be hard and it can be tiring, but we are told to keep going and to stay cheerful. Some of you might know that in my younger days, uh, I ran the, the Reading Half Marathon a few times. And when you run that course, there is a torturous, torturous stretch of about two and a half miles. And it's the most deflating experience I've had probably in, in a decade and a half. 
because you get back onto the A33, that road leading back out towards the Modeski Stadium. And you know, you know you're heading towards the finish line because you can see the Modeski Stadium. You only have that last bit to go. You can see the windmill. No one knows why there's one windmill there, but you can see it. You're heading towards it. But that stretch, that two and a half miles, takes your entire lifetime. It's just so, so much longer than you ever imagined. And you know what? Somehow, just for that race, they managed to build in hills, all up hills, gradients that you've never, ever experienced before when you're in the car. And you're tired. And you're plodding along. And you haven't really increased your pace in the last half hour. And the windmill's still there, taunting you, but it's not getting any bigger. It's not getting any closer. And you look around you, and genuinely, you see paramedics tending to people who are on the floor in agony with cramp. And someone overtakes you, and it genuinely feels like they overtake you at this speed, and you can't go any faster. <clears throat> and finally, you get to the stadium. You can see where you need to go to get in the entrance, and they make you take a loop all the way along here, and then all the way back to come to pretty much the same point to then go around into the stadium. It's basically psychological torture. But then you enter the stadium. You get in there, and you see that you just have to run along one side of the pitch, and then down one more side. And you can see the finish line. And you can see people have finished, they've stopped, they've got there. And suddenly your tired legs, they find strength. And your arms, they open up a bit because they've been clumped to your sides for the last half hour. And your feet, your feet, you think they're never going to walk again. And yet suddenly they're stretching a little bit further apart and you're sprinting. You're sprinting the last 200 metres and you don't know where it's come from, but you are. And let me tell you, I know where that comes from. I know where that sprinting energy comes from after that draining two and a half last miles. It's because you see the goal. You see the goal at the end. You know you've not cut the corners. You've not stopped. You've not given up. You've not just walked off the course. And now you can see the prize. You can see what you're heading for. You kept going and that is your reward. And this is what the writer of this letter is trying to get to. Look at the goal of your faith. And you can find that energy that you have in the last 200 metres to keep going, to keep sprinting towards your hope. That hope is something that we look forward to. And as the writer alludes to here, that we can enjoy and look forward to enjoying. Now, I have to say and be cautious here because I'd be foolish if I was to say it's easy for us to endure and to be perseverant and patient in our own strength, isn't it? We are mere mortals and it's difficult for us to keep going but that's where we ask the Holy Spirit to refresh us in our ministries and in our walk. He can give us a renewed passion. He can even give us a new passion to serve. We just need to ask. Dav quoted this this morning. Luke 11 verse 13 says that we can ask for more of the Holy Spirit and that request will always, always be granted. 
And it's key that we do, because there's nothing worse, is there, than getting to the end of something and thinking to yourselves, I could have done better with that, couldn't I? I could have done a bit more. I've had that at the end of races I've done. I could have run faster, I could have done better. And I knew it was within my gift to do it, and I don't want us to feel like that. I would implore you, as the writer to the Hebrews was imploring them, keep going. It's within your gift if you rely on the Lord. So we need to endure, but why? Why should we endure and keep going for the sake of God? Well, let's see what the writer to the Hebrews says to that question. Verse 10 tells us that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God is just. If he's not unjust, then he's just. That means he is fair. And with that in mind, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that God knows our good works and where we have stayed faithful. And he doesn't forget those things. He will credit us for where we have done good works and live righteously for his name. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? But I'm an imperfect man. But I can still give credit to my son for being good when I've asked him to be. And God is a perfect father. He is this amazing God. And he will record us, uh, reward us according to our good works. Which is even more staggering when you think on top of that. Well, actually, he's doing that on top of not punishing us for our own sins. That's a God that we should want to endure for. A just God who will reward us. Verse 14 goes on. It talks about promises being made to Abraham in Genesis. God says to Abraham that he will bless him and give him many descendants. Abraham didn't deserve that blessing of God. Yes, he tried to live faithfully. But he wasn't a perfect, sinless man, and yet God blessed him anyway. And it's the same for us. None of us deserve God's blessing. And yet he's given us many, many blessings because he is a loving God towards us. He has blessed many of us in this room with salvation and he's called us to it while we were still sinners. That, my friends, is a God that's worth persevering for. Why else should we persevere? Why else should we endure and keep going for God? Well, verses 13 to 18 are littered with proof that this is a God who will not break his promises to us. He made sure his promises to Abraham, which was ultimately to save the world through Abraham's line. He made that doubly sure, as it says in these verses. And so our hope of salvation through the Lord's plan is secure. He's not going to go back on it. And therefore we can look to the finish line with absolute certainty of hope that we have glory and freedom to look forward to. I think that's a God who is worth enduring and persevering for. We have many, many promises made by this unchanging God and he is not going to break them. But I think 
we have even more reasons, therefore, to persevere, reasons to be cheerful. And I want to share some of those with us for when we are feeling fatigued, for when we are feeling like we can't go on, for when we're thinking, I don't really want to be doing this, doing these good works that the Lord commands us to do. I think there's many, many promises we can hold on to when we're doing that. So what promises can we hold to? What can keep us going if we are feeling fatigued, if we are not in a place to endure, to keep going? Well, the Bible contains a lot of promises. If you do a quick search online, you'll find articles entitled The 50 Promises of God, 11 Promises God Wants You to Believe Every Single Day. And all of these are fantastic promises. And we can marvel at them. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, how much do we really take hold of those promises? Do we really see those promises as reasons to endure and persevere in the face of confusing or uncomfortable or dangerous circumstances? Sometimes it is, it's difficult to get our heads around those promises and we subtly convince ourselves that actually, well, that promise was made for someone else. That promise was given to the heroes of the Bible doesn't really apply to me here today. For example, do you always pray with faith that the Lord can do things that will absolutely blow your mind? And yet in Matthew 17 and verse 20, the Lord Jesus himself says that even if we pray with the smallest amount of faith, we can tell a mountain, just consider a mountain to move. I've never tried to move a mountain, and I'm not sure any of us here have, because the maps of the world haven't really changed that much recently, but we have to believe, we have to truly believe that if we pray with the smallest amount of faith, God can move mountains. We have to believe that what Jesus has said is true and that we can take hold of promises like that. And if we do, as we endure, as we patiently keep going, that can have a profound effect on how we live, on how we think, on how we act. And that's my challenge for us here. How would it truly trusting in these next few promises made by an unchangeable God who is powerful, who is loving, who is able to grant them and holy enough to never break them? How would that change the way you endure, change the way you persevere, change the way you keep going and you live? How would trusting in promises, these promises of God, encourage you in diligent works of faith and of patience? I'm going to pick on four promises that challenge us in that question. If we really trusted in and kept hold of these promises, how would our lives be different? How would our enduring and our perseverance be different? Promise number one, therefore, never will I leave you, never, or sorry, nor forsake you. That promise was given originally to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. And it's quoted again at the end of this book, Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 5. And I'd say, that's an astounding promise. Firstly, for me, because of that word, never. The Lord God, he promises here, no matter how tough things get, no matter how ugly 
things get in our lives, even if we've caused that ugliness. He's not going to give up. He's not going to walk away from us. He will not leave us and he will not forsake us. Do you ever have days when you think that God doesn't want to listen to you? Do you ever have problems that you're a bit too embarrassed to bring to God? If you do, as you faithfully and patiently live for the Lord, I want you to come back to this promise. Because I promise you that God's not going to say to you, well, I didn't know you were going to bring me that one. He knows. He knows our problems. He knows our faults. He knows our flaws. And he's not scared of them. If we bring them to him, we can be 100% sure that he's not going to abandon us. He's not going to forsake us because we're too much hard work, because we've pushed him too far. That's not going to happen. And if we claim that promise for ourselves, I think it changes how we walk with God. It changes how open and how honest we are with him. And it will deepen our understanding of his love. And we'll get to see him doing incredible things in our own lives. And that is a reason to be cheerful. That is a reason not to tire of living a righteous life. Promise number two, kind of a similar one. I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know this one well. It comes from the end of Matthew, the Great Commission. And this promise is astounding too for many, many reasons. But firstly, because of the words which I hadn't really noticed until I read it again in preparation for this. But the words, I am with you always. God himself is with us to the very end of the age. If you think about it, if I was to promise to stick with you all through thick and thin, I hope you'd be encouraged. But let's be completely honest with ourselves, I'm not that useful. But this is the promise that the most sovereign, powerful, merciful, loving being ever is going to stick with you through thick and thin. And similarly, the the second encouraging word in this promise is that word always. The Lord, the Lord of all who commands everything we see, hear, perceive, he'll be with us always. He doesn't take a day off. You don't get an out-of-office response from heaven. He's not in a meeting. He's not at lunch when you call. And he doesn't just have two minutes for you because he's heading out the door. He says he will be with us always. So maybe you're surrounded by people that ridicule you for your faith at work, at school, wherever it might be. Can I remind you that God is there right next to you? Perhaps you struggle with things like ill health. Well, God is there right with you. Perhaps you struggle with a temptation that you just can't seem to shake off. Well, God is there right next to you all of the time, gently saying, let me help you. So how should that encourage us to faithfully and patiently endure? Well, quite simply, it should lift our souls in the face of good, bad, boring, exhilarating days because we have the powerful, loving, awesome God with us wherever we go. Promise number three then. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. This appears in Romans 10, verse 11. 
Paul is quoting from an Isaiah 28, verse 16. And we also see that King David uses a similar phrase in Psalm 25, verse 3. And if you look back at where Paul was quoting from in Isaiah 28, 16, this is what it actually says. Isaiah 28, 16 says, So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested precious cornerstone, which is why I was very glad we sung that a moment ago. For a sure foundation, the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. The one who trusts in God's cornerstone, which is how the Lord Jesus himself was referred to, will never be stricken with panic. But we have a problem here, don't we? Because the stricken with panic and the shame. Now, if you go back to the literal translation from this, that word shame or stricken with panic, it actually comes back to more, something that's more like the one who trusts in the Lord will never be hurried. And I think we get the idea of panic from, from being hurried or harassed into doing something. That can make us panic, can't it? We all panic if you're pressured to do something. And why do we panic? It's because we don't want to do the wrong thing. We don't want to do anything that would lead to us being or looking foolish or being put to shame. So why is this promise important? Well, it gives us a hope that we can trust in the Lord, that he will never put us in a situation that we cannot handle. We will find things difficult. We will be in situations that we don't really understand, but in every situation we face, we can rely on the Lord's strength and ask for his help. This, this is a truly empowering promise. I had a friend who survived a car accident many years ago, and for a few months after that accident, she believed that because she hadn't been killed, she was pretty much invincible. Logic wasn't really in that thinking. It's not an example I would suggest you follow, but how different would our days be if we took a firm and unflinching hold of the belief that by God's grace and through his Holy Spirit, we could never be in a situation that we couldn't handle? I think we'd be bolder. I'm sure we'd worry less, which is something Ian preached on a few weeks ago at the start of the year. I think this is a beautiful promise and it's definitely a reason to be cheerful, to faithfully endure. But there's one promise that trumps them all, isn't there? Promise that you find a few times in God's word. Promise number four, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. If you cling to no other promise and you find no other reason in what I've said this evening to persevere, to keep going, to keep living for the Lord, then you have to take this one to heart. We find it, of course, a version of it in John 3.16. We find a similar account in John 5, verse 24. It's the promise that if you trust that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to set you free from the sins you couldn't get rid of yourselves so that you could be right with God, then you will you will have eternal life. That's an amazing promise. 
that's a promise that's worth holding on to. If you're feeling fatigued, if you're losing enthusiasm and patience with the ministries and with the life that God has called you to. It's a promise embedded in the fact that Jesus himself was tired and he was so, so far away from his comfort zone. But he still kept going until the very end, quite literally, to make sure he could deliver on for you. This is a reason, as the song says, to be cheerful and a reason, as the writer to the Hebrew says, to keep going. It's a promise that as we get to the last few verses of our passage today, we see we should keep as an anchor. Verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What does that mean? Well, to grasp what that really means, we have to consider for a second what an anchor does. See, the humble anchor, it keeps a ship secure. It keeps it in the right place, doesn't it? Without it, a ship will simply be carried away, disappear, be gone. But an anchor doesn't keep a ship perfectly still. The ship can still be moved around in a storm a little. It can still be buffeted around in the water. But if it has a firm anchor, that ship is not going to be taken away from where it should be. And this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus is exactly the same as that anchor. We can be, in fact, we will be buffeted around in tricky times. We can feel like we're being stretched and strained like the rope of the anchor. And sometimes we might be fooled into thinking there's no hope. That we will be washed away, but... We have an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. That hope will always, always keep us secure because it is the strongest anchor that has ever existed. Because it is the hope of a holy priest and a king, which is what we hear about in the next piece of this passage, Melchizedek. It is the hope of the Lord. It is the hope of his atoning sacrifice the only sacrifice that could ever suffice to set us free. And therefore, it's a reason to be cheerful, to endure patiently. So some of these promises we've looked at this evening, they're, they're truly empowering if we choose to take hold of them. But this promise, and the hope that this last one brings, is more than that. This one is a life changer. Because it takes us from being slaves to sin that are destined to death, for death, to being children of the most holy Lord God, loved and secure in his kingdom of peace forever. It gives us the greatest reason not to give up, not to cut corners, not to get fatigued, but to stay diligent to the end, to continue to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited what was promised. So what do we take from this passage? Well, Ian Drury, he gave us some very, very bizarre reasons to be cheerful. And if I'm honest, I don't think any of his reasons would keep me going through tough times or encourage me to be patient, to endure. But I don't think his sentiment was a bad one. 
because this is what the writer to the Hebrews was saying. There are reasons to be cheerful. There are reasons to keep going, to be patient, to not become slothful, even though it is hard work what we have to do. And there are reasons to continue in our good works and not become lazy. And those reasons, they stem from the fact that we have an amazing, loving God who will remember the good we have done and who keeps some truly astounding promises to be our support and our guide in all of it. Most importantly, the reason to continue serving, enduring, patiently and faithfully waiting is that we have an unbreakable assurance of a hope of eternity because of what the Lord Jesus has done when he gave himself to give us life. The writer to the Hebrews was saying, we have everything we need to spur us on to good works and to live righteous lives in our Lord Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, should be our reason not just to be cheerful. That should be our reason for absolutely everything that we do. And that, that's my prayer for us as we go into this next week and beyond.